Welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book Workshop. In this episode, two recovered alcoholics break down one chapter of the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous line by line. Find out more at ladiesbigbook.com. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, Good morning, ladies. My name's Shelly, and I am a grateful recovered alcoholic. Um, I know Lee and I are really excited to get to do this together. Um, The doctor's opinion and There is a lot to cover, so I'm going to jump right into it. Uh, I wanted to say something before I actually get into the book, though, is my story is not unique. I'm sure it's like a lot of other lady stories. I spent a lot of years in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous not really understanding what my problem was. I mean, I knew that I drank and bad things would happen (laughs) 99.9% of the time. And that when I said I was never going to do it again, that I I couldn't hold to that decision on my own. Sometimes I could a day, sometimes I could a couple of weeks. I mean, but I couldn't, I couldn't ever just stop for good and all. Like my intention was every single time, you know, and when I got to the Magdalene house, it was honestly, truly the first time that I heard the doctor's opinion really broken down, especially page XXBII, which we'll get happily into today. But I was like, are you kidding me? And, and I'll start reading in a second. But it was, it was some relief because I was learning that my body was made up differently and that because I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just thought I was a bad mom and a bad person. And I just needed to make better decisions. And where we also learn in this chapter about the, you know, the choice, um, how I've lost the power of choice. And Dr. Silkworth goes into that a little bit. So I just wanted to make that, you know, I'm like I said, I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And I love reading the doctor's opinion because it's really when, we're introduced to this idea of the, my body is made up differently. And also I have this mental component. So we're going to start on page uh, XXV in the doctor's opinion. We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of others and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction, gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. So before I read the letter, um, just quick note, Dr. Silkworth was a doctor who worked at Towns Hospital. That's the hospital that they're talking about in New York near Central Park. And he worked with between, I've heard between 40 to 50,000 alcoholics and addicts. I mean, we had addicts back then also, but of course we focus on, on the alcoholic. But, and what, his, what he writes about is his experience at Towns Hospital and what he kept seeing. And what he saw over the years that he was there is nine out of 10 that would come into Towns Hospital would go through the treatment, would get the Belladonna treatment and other hydrotherapy that it talks about in the big book that they gave uh, to these alcoholics. And nine out of 10 would leave that place going, whoo, I'm so glad I now I know and 
my doctors told me if I drink anymore, I'm probably going to die. Or, you know, they understood the consequences and they pulled up or they moderated and they never came back. But there was that one out of every 10 that Dr. Silkworth noticed that they would get the very same treatment that the other nine did, right? But that one kept returning. And every time that he returned to Towns Hospital, he was worse off than the time before. And so that's really what this, you know, where his findings and and the doctor's opinion is, is based on. So the letter goes on to say, to whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. How cool is that, that we can become recovered? I don't have to wake up every day going, God, please don't let me drink today. I hope today's not the day I drink. I apply this program, do a few simple things, and I can be recovered. But if I want to be recovered like the first 100 that Dr. Silkworth is talking about, then I'm going to have to follow what's in this book precisely. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations you may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, MD. And I I love where he says you may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves, you know, and, and what that's, what our job is, you know, like when we are going out and carrying this message is to talk about our experience with this, you know, to talk about what alcoholism is. Not all, you know, it's not about the consequences or, you know, the outside things going on, but what is alcoholism? That's, that's what we, they can rely absolutely on anything that we have to say about our experience with that. The physician who, at our request, gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement, which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or were outright mental defectives. Although some of those things do apply, right? (laughs) These things were true to some extent. In fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. 
As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. That as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Though we work out our solution on a spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. Let me stop there and say, back in the day, this, what they're talking about is hospitalization is, was typically, typically three to five days, right? That is because we know how dangerous it can be for an alcoholic to just abruptly stop drinking. It, we can have seizures and we can die. But what he's not talking about here is going to sobriety by the sea for a whole month and having acupuncture and learning more about myself. And that's not what he's talking about in the big book. We're talking about some treatment to get us over that initial hump of quitting alcoholism when it can be very dangerous for us. So that hospitalization is usually typically three to five days. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. The doctor writes, The subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. And we, I have highlighted in my book, paramount, which means above all else, everything else, right? So it's paramount importance to those who are alcoholic. I say this after many years experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. That's Towns Hospital, like I said before. There was, therefore, a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge." Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital, and while here, he acquired some ideas, which he put into practical application at once. And we know he's talking about Bill Wilson here. Um, see if I, I thought maybe I was going to say something about that paragraph right there. Oh, I, I just have had a little note on there that, you know, so... Dr. Silkworth, I mean, he was a very renowned doctor. I mean, he, you know, and, and if you think about the doctors that have tried maybe to help us in the past and, and they sort of have, you know, kind of like this, oh, we know, we, some have a know-it-all approach to alcoholism, but I found that Dr. Silkworth was really humble when writing this and, you know, admitting in these writings in the doctor's opinion that, you know, he doesn't know everything. And perhaps there's something with the alcoholic that in order for us to recover that are going to be outside of just a medical approach to it. 
Later, he requested the privilege of being, talking about Bill, later he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The case we have followed, I'm sorry, the cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men, as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. I love that this power is introduced, right? This power that I don't have that I need to get hooked up to that's going to save my life. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. So uh, this is probably one of the most read pages I know, (laughs) the next couple pages, in Maggie's, in groups, and and like I kind of started off the meeting with, it was one after spending many, many years in the rooms of AA, I never, no one ever broke down the doctor's opinion to me. And like I said, it was, it's of huge importance to us to understand what alcoholism is. You know, I need to be able to, because on page 44, later on in the book, it's going to ask us, you know, we're the only ones that can diagnose whether we're alcoholics or not. No one can I had people for years saying, oh, you're alcoholic, you drink too much, blah, blah, blah. But I'm the only one that can say whether I'm alcoholic or not. And how can I do that if I don't understand what alcoholism means, right? So this top part of this page is where Dr. Silkworth starts to get into the body component. There's a lot of information in in these first paragraphs, so we'll kind of stop along the way. But So he goes on to say, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So let's stop there and talk about that for a second. So here's where we're introduced that I have something called an allergy to alcohol. I had never thought that I had an allergy to alcohol because I drank it and I drank it well. You know what I mean? Because if you think about people that I don't have any food allergies or anything, but people that have maybe a straw uh, allergic to nuts, let's say, if they put nuts in their body, then that allergic reaction that they have, you know, maybe their lips swell up or their throat closes, um, it's hard for them to breathe. That is a very apparent reaction that they're having, an allergic reaction. But this allergic reaction that I get once I put alcohol in my body is that it produces this phenomenon of craving. So if you think about when you're looking at these pages and trying to figure out, you know, am I alcoholic? Am I not? Well, let's talk about that that body component and the allergy. When you put alcohol into your system, what happens? 
Um, with a real alcoholic, you're going, it produces a craving, which the phenomenon, so it's unexplained. Our bodies are just made up differently than normal drinkers. So there is something that happens after I put alcohol in my system because of the allergy that sets off this craving, which then I drink more than I intend to every single time. That's the way it was with me. I know maybe in the early years before I really knew that I was alcoholic, maybe I could pull up for a little bit or, you know, but for the hopeless chronic alcoholic, we have this allergy component. It is the one thing that will never change in our bodies. Um, unless one day they come up with something, but you know, we are, I'm always going to be an alcoholic and I'm always going to have this allergy to alcohol. So, Another thing I used to think also, maybe like five days out from, you know, I'm trying to not drink and just hanging on and, you know, maybe I'm even a week out and I start like thinking about, you know, like I need something to drink or whatever. My brain starts telling me I need something to drink. And I used to think that that was my body craving alcohol. But after about 40 eight, 72 hours, all our bodies are different, but that's the general rule is about how long it takes for alcohol to get out of our system. So once that happens and the alcohol is out of my system, my body isn't craving the alcohol. Now we're talking about the mental obsession, which um, Leo get into in just a second, but that physical craving only happens after alcohol has entered my body after I take that drink, right? And this physical allergy that, like an allergy to something is just an abnormal reaction that I have to something that I put in or on my body. So did I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol when I ingested it? You better believe it. Because I have cravings for, I'm so bad about chocolate. I love chocolate. But and I'll get a craving for chocolate, but I'm not going to sit down and eat 15 Snickers bars. You know what I mean? Like I can have one and satisfy that craving and then I'm good to go till the next one pops up. But not so much with the alcoholic, because if you kind of look at your own experience and I know mine was once I put the alcohol in my system and this phenomenon of craving is set off, then my body wants the third drink way more than it wanted the first, right? And it wants the fifth one more than it wanted the third one. It is literally a craving that I can never satisfy. The more I drink, the more my body demands the alcohol. And that didn't make sense to me before I knew about the body component of alcoholism. Because, I mean, my family and my friends would be like, Shelly, you are so loaded. Like, why are you, why are you trying to get more alcohol? Why are you drinking? You know, and I was drinking beyond my control, right? My, the allergy had taken over my body and now I was drinking. I was no longer making choices about whether I was going to stay and have a few more shots or whether I was going to leave, you know, and it looks like that I'm changing my mind, right? Um, I just decided to stay and have some more. But once that I put alcohol in my system, that craving is set off, 
then I will drink more than I intend to. And that is a physical reaction that I cannot stop with willpower. It would be just like me telling someone that has an allergy to nuts, like we talked about, once they ingest the nuts, that's like me saying, oh, honey, just use your willpower, you know, just muster up enough willpower and you won't react to those nuts. That's silly, right? I mean, that sounds ridiculous. Well, it's the same thing with the body of an alcoholic. Once I put the alcohol in, I'm off to the races. No amount of willpower is going to stop my body from reacting. And that to me, when I, when we started breaking this part down was almost a relief because I was like, okay, I'm not crazy. Like there really is something wrong. My body is made differently than my mom's, you know, cause she can like go out and have a margarita and it makes her feel kind of dizzy or happy and she won't even drink the whole thing. You know what I mean? And I'm like, good Lord, mom, come on, <laughs> push through it. You know, you can do it, but her body isn't made like mine. Um, so she can do that. And lots of people can do that, right? It's like one out of every 10 that can't. That's someone like us. Um, so it says this phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Just like my mom I was talking about. We probably all have friends and family that can drink and this craving and this allergy does not exist in their bodies. But let's go back to the alcoholic. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So when I get sober, I'm going to start reading labels on things. I'm going to be honest with my doctors. I'm going to let them know that I'm in recovery, that I'm recovered alcoholic. Um, you know, there, so I'm going to read labels. I won't get into all that because there are things that people need to talk to their doctors and this stuff isn't in the book. I'll just say that I went, I had breast cancer and I went through a lot of cancer treatments and, you know, there are medications. We go through things, but like for just because I feel like I'm anxious and I might need to take something, I got to be really, really careful what I put in my body and I'll stop, stop with that. But anything like NyQuil, Let's just go something over the counter. NyQuil has a lot of alcohol in it. I actually used to sometimes detox with alcohol myself because um, I was like, well, I'm not drinking alcohol, you know, but it would calm my nerves and whatever. So I got to be really careful because my sobriety is super important to me. And because of the physical allergy, my body will react, right? Because of the allergy. It's not going to be like, oh crap, I'm going to have this, be able to put this in my body and then I'll be okay because it's NyQuil, right? It still has alcohol in it. And my body doesn't know the difference between a shot of tequila and Aunt Betty's rum cake. You know what I mean? It's still going to have the same reaction. Uh all right, so we can't use it in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. I love this because it doesn't say their problems become astonishingly, astonishingly difficult to solve and then they form the habit and then they lose their self-confidence. And then, right, it, it's backwards. 
all of those things aren't causing, I mean, trust me, it is astonishingly difficult to get up and go to work and pay my bills on time when I'm drunk, right? It is, it, things become very difficult. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. So this frothy emotional appeal, what does that look like? Um, it looks like the judge saying, if you do this again, you're going to jail. My kids saying, mom, please, begging me to quit. My grandfather saying, don't you love your kids enough to stop drinking, you know? And sometimes this frothy emotional peel might work for just a little bit, but it's not going to be enough, right, to get me to never pick up the drink again. But it says the message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So this depth and weight that they're talking about, I found that the first time I sat across from my sponsor and she told me her story and what alcoholism looked like in her life, what her step one experience had been. And it was the first time that I could start matching up my own experience, right? I mean, she would tell me about things that had happened, how the body part, how once she started, she couldn't stop. And then when she swore she'd never do it again, she couldn't stay away from it. That had depth and weight, not the frothy emotional appeal of my friends and family saying, please, please quit. Even though it desperately tugged at my heartstrings, it didn't have anything that was going to last. It didn't have that depth and weight like that other alcoholic woman sitting across from me who was speaking my language and was recovered, right? That's pretty cool stuff. And um, I'll read one more paragraph. Oh, what else I wanted to say is I, I love this too, where it says their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. That means starting over, like to recreate my life is starting over internally. I heard um, Cliff Bishop say that one time about, you know, I used to think, oh, I just want my old life back. I just want things back the way they were. Believe me, <laughs> once I got through my fourth and fifth step, I did not want anything back the way that it was, right? It was not good. But this program and these steps and getting hooked up to this power give me the opportunity to recreate my life. And it's so much better than I could have ever, ever imagined. So that's going to start over internally. Because remember, alcoholism, internal condition. And so God's going to allow us to be able to recreate our lives. If any feel that a psychiatrist directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us for a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children, let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up upon, among them. Okay. I'm going to stop there and let Lee, uh, keep us going with the body part. I mean, with the mind, sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Shelly. Hi, everyone. I'm Lee Tidwell, Grateful Recovered Alcoholic. 
Okay. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. No kidding. This is why I drank. Because I liked the way it made me feel. It changed the way I felt. This doesn't happen in the average temperate drinker. Some of them actually drink for taste, which was never the case for me. I also liked NyQuil. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. The truth is, I can't control the amount I take once I put alcohol into my system. The false is that this time it'll be different. So for many years, I ran this um, horrible cycle where I would wake up or come to and I would say, dear God, please just don't let me drink again. What did I do last night? And by two o'clock, my mind has said, you know, Lee, it really wasn't that bad. We found your car. No one was hurt. And tonight it's going to be different. Well, to normal drinkers, that sounds crazy. But for us, I'm a chronic alcoholic, that seemed to be normal. I made it through another night, and tonight I'm only going to drink two or three, and it's going to be different. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. This becomes normal to us. Um, I remember, you know, one day I woke up and it seemed completely normal to me to drink a glass of wine before I had coffee so that I could stop the shakes long enough to put my makeup on. These things really aren't normal, but our mind begins to tell us they're normal. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others take, taking with impunity. So let's talk about this restless, irritable, and discontent. This restless, irritable, and discontent is an internal feeling that I'm drinking to overcome. This is this feeling that I would be able to breathe again if I could just have a drink. I would be able to settle down and think about what I need to do next if I could just have a drink. Um, Sometimes this sense of ease and comfort came long before I actually had the drink. It came driving to the liquor store, knowing that it was well before nine o'clock and that I was actually going to get there and I had money, I would start getting that sense of ease and comfort. The second part where it says drinks, which they see others taking with impunity. So I'm sure you ladies have had friends or family members that drank or they look like they drank just the way that you did but they never had the consequences or, you know, the family members begging them not to drink again. And I wondered to myself, why, why, if she drinks just like me, am I the one that's always getting in trouble with this? After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, the phenomenon of craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. So what they're describing to us here is this um, cycle of addiction. You know, I, I awaken and I say, I'm not going to drink again. It's a firm resolution. You can put me through a lie detector test 
and I really don't want to drink. But I start getting this restless, irritable, and discontent. My mind takes over, pushes me back to that first drink. I succumb to the desire to drink, and then I'm off to the races. And once I put that alcohol in my system, I have absolutely no control over what's going to happen next. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope for his recovery. Um, When I sat down with my sponsor and she broke this down for me, I had a very similar experience to Shelly. For many years, um, I thought that I was just crazy. Because why, when all these bad things happen and all these people are begging me not to drink again, do I just keep doing it? It wasn't like I was dumb. I mean, all of us are very smart. In other aspects of our lives, we have control. We make good decisions. But when it comes to alcohol, I have absolutely no willpower. And sometimes I couldn't even see it coming. And to me, that is, those are the actions of someone who's not quite stable. But when I read this and I see that other people have experienced this, and I almost felt like they were reading my mind because I felt like for a long time I was unique, that these things only happened to me. But there's a lot of comfort that in 1930, a, you know, middle-aged man had these exact same experiences that I had in the 2000s. Um, and that this is going to keep happening unless I can have an ex- a psychic change. On the other hand, and as strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. So this gives us some hope. Um, I remember Cliff, Cliff asking me one time, Lee, have you ever had enough? And I was like, I didn't really understand. And he's like, have you ever had enough to drink? And I had to think about it. And I was like, no, I've never had enough to drink. And he was like, what's working in Cindy? Do you think that can work in you? And she drank like I drank and she was happy in sobriety. She, you know, was actually one of the most joyful people I'd ever met. And I just couldn't, it gave me a lot of hope that by working a few simple steps, I could have that too. Men cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. You know, we try to rationalize this disease where there really is no, you know, it's a body and mind disease. My body cannot produce, cannot um, break down alcohol like other people. And my mind keeps telling me that this time it's going to be different. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. 
many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. Um, You know, people with drinking problems have been getting sober for thousands of years and not through AA. Um, There are all different types of um, drinking problems. But when it comes to the chronic alcoholic, we are a very specific, different type. And we're beyond human aid, like it says earlier in the chapter. Um, Rehab, you know, psychiatric hospitals, these work for thousands of people. I carry the message during normal times at Salvation Army, and they have a wonderful program for women to help them get sober. But there are those women that are beyond human aid that psychiatric hospitals cannot help. And that's what we're here for, or that's what this is here for. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I have had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. Um, I love that paragraph because there are so many times that I have built my life back up or gotten my, I always thought if I could fix the external things, then the drinking problem would go away. You know, if I could just get the boy, if I could just get to work on time, and if I could just get a little bit of money in the bank, then I wouldn't need to drink. But what really happened was the reverse. I get all those things. Life seems like it's going along fine. And all of a sudden, I'm like, well, a drink would be great. And I tear everything down around me. Again, it's not because I'm stupid. It's because I'm battling this situation that is beyond my mental control. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than to continue to fight. And in here, they're talking about, um, you know, there are some people that can't get sober, can't make it, and they choose to end their lives instead. The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon for keeps. They are over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. There is the type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. There is the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. There is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are types entirely normal in every respect, except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. So I'm going to stop right there just for a second. So, you know, when they're breaking down those classifications of alcoholics, um, they're hoping that you can find some identification with yourself in your drinking. You know, everything in this book is written towards 
um, helping the alcoholic decide, is this me or is this not me? For me, when I'm reading this, I've been all of these classifications of alcoholics at some point in time. I've gone through phases where, you know, I can't make a decision that I'm never going to drink again, or, you know, I'm going to plan my way out of these scenarios. You know, I lived in that for 10 years. If I just take $20 to the bar, then when the $20 is done, I'm going to go home. Um, I'm going to not drink tequila. Tequila is the problem. You know, I'm not going to drink wine or whatever the situation is. You know where I'm going with this. Um, But these are, you know, different types that hopefully we can relate to. All of these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. So that's our big tip. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. So this phenomenon of craving is the one thing that sets us apart from heavy drinkers and other type of drinkers. And, um, and it's very important because if I'm honest with myself and I can see that this phenomenon of craving happens when I put alcohol into my body, then my solution is right here. The only relief is abstinence. But how do we get there? This immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Much has been written pro and con, but amongst the physicians, the the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. And that's probably another good thing to like kind of just point out here. You know, we are not typically very honest with our doctors um, when we go about exactly what's going on. Um, I had to laugh because we had some nurses that came to a meeting once and they said that in nursing school, they're taught that if um, someone's asked about their alcohol consumption to add four. So if you say, if they ask you, you know, how many glasses or how many drinks do you have in a day? I would say one or two. And really it was probably 10, but um, they know this. They know that we're not being honest with them. And so to have Dr. Silkworth come and write this um, entire letter about how this program works is huge. And it was huge back then. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partially and partly recognized his features, but there, all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. 
I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time had passed and no return to alcohol. That is so amazing. You know, it's, it's funny. Many people see the change in us before we see the change in ourselves. But it's amazing how through this program, we, can, we go through this entire transformation. You know, at the beginning of the paragraph, they thought he had brain damage because he was so out of it and had damaged his brain and body so much. And a year later, the doctor doesn't even recognize him as the same person. That is so beautiful. It always kind of makes me tear up a little bit. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a, prom- by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis and deciding his situation was hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment a waste of effort. Unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future, he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. His alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology. And we doubted if even that would have any effect. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is as fine a specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through, and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. William D. Silkworth, M.D. So just to kind of review this last part, you know, Dr. Silkworth put himself on the line when he wrote this for the first 100 when they were doing this book. And he was putting real instances that he had come across, you know, like Shelley said, he had treated between 40, 50,000 alcoholics and drug addicts during his time. And this was like the Betty Ford clinic of the day. And You know, when doctors and psychiatrists see us come in, we're not really the people they want to treat because we lie. We're, you know, we're not honest with ourselves, let alone them. And there's not like this quick fix because it's a two-part disease. It's of the mind and of the body. And so we're kind of a lot to handle. And so when he sees this, you know, this 12-step experience, you know, he mentions Bill earlier in the, in the letter, you know, Bill had gone through, had been in Towns Hospital many, many times, and they really thought he was going to die because he was such a, he was just such a mystery to them. You know, he, they would get these, let's say, 10 people in, they would give them all the same treatment. And nine of them would go away and never come back. And, you know, here's Bill beating down the door every couple of months. And so when Bill has this psychic change and he comes back and he wants to talk to other people that are in the hospital, I cannot, I'm not really even sure why Dr. Silkworth did that because it seems kind of crazy, 
you know, but then he saw it work and he saw the changes in his patients and it gave some hope that this alcoholic of the hopeless variety, you know, by working a few simple steps could become a functioning sober member of society. And that's the pretty cool miracle of the program. Thank you for listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book Workshop. This recording is not associated with any AA group or AA World Services. Find out more at ladiesbigbook.com.